Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we're excited to announce that O'Neill & Associates is now O'Neill & Associates as well as Seven Letter, as our public relations practice has merged with the Washington, D.C. firm Seven Letter. So we have Tom O'Neill and Eric Smith, the founding partner and CEO of Seven Letter, on our podcast today to talk about this exciting new merger and what it means for our business going forward. But first up, it's three, two, one, go with Cosmo Macero. All right, welcome back to another remote edition of OA On Air. I'm here with Cayenne Isaacson, the official voice of our podcast. Cayenne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. So 2020 is dragging on. We're past the, past the midpoint, not the best year. Um uh, certainly, and uh, you know we are knee deep in in all kinds of stuff. Um, lack of leadership in Washington, um, the resurging pandemic. We're going to talk about that, of course. Civil unrest and uh, the a very important national conversation around um, uh, racial equality and uh, policing and such. But let's talk about the pandemic. Let's talk about COVID nineteen and the idea of a generation of youth and impressionable young folks, not to mention everyone else, uh, for whom this could become, uh, if not the defining event, certainly uh, an event that leaves such an impression on their formative uh, uh, identities or or, or in their formative years, that it, it is something that that will they will carry with them forever, uh, and, and certainly uh, it will be um, something that they talk about to their children and grandchildren and impress upon them, in the in the in the way that parents from other generations might you know talked about the Depression or World War II or Vietnam or even 9/11. But I, I think the comparison that we are seeing is with the depression because there's certainly economic similarities um and also just the the overall um you know overwhelming and devastating impact uh, on american life yeah i mean and it depends depending on who you talk to different kids different ages are certainly handling it and, and responding to it differently whether it's mentally and emotionally um but i think one of the things that has continued to come up, and particularly as we look at what school is going to look like in the fall, is this is going to reset education. Um, Kids today are most likely not going to graduate high school at the level that I did or you did by virtue of the fact they've lost months and months and months of schooling in person that truly probably can't really be made up. So we're going to have to reset the expectations of every grade and that's going to be felt for decades to come. Um, and I think that's probably, for me, I think one of the sadder things when I when I think about it. But also the idea that these kids are adapting to operating virtually and remotely in a way that threw a lot of adults for a loop when we all abruptly left our offices in March, right? Like my son now knows how to get in and out of his Zoom classroom completely by himself. 
um, mute himself, raise his hand, do all of the things. Uh, there are adults that in March didn't know how to do that. Um, so in one regard, they're going to be way ahead of us, perhaps, in some aspects of technology and understanding how to use things remotely and be resilient to that. But in others, we'll be probably behind where so many others have been previously. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, kids are really adapting quickly. They're learning skills out of necessity to adjust. They're also probably going, and, and while their education will be um, impacted probably in a negative way or, or in a negative way, and, and they'll be slowed uh, by this uh, crisis, I think they're also forced to grow up a little faster in other ways. Now, there's a story in um, uh, Boston Globe Ideas that, that talks about this dynamic as it, as, as uh, compared to or as we as learned by studying the depression and 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 that that very dynamic was was indeed true. You know, uh, children became very aware of uh, literally children very aware of you know capitalism and uh, uh, political leadership and government leadership and the legal system and banks and and things like that that you know aren't always. Uh, top of the list in terms of features of your childhood experience. Uh, good example. Um, they, they cite a little uh, a little rhyme that was used when you were skipping rope during the depression. That was interesting. Yeah, Hoover blew the whistle, Mellon rang the bell, Wall Street gave the signal, and the country went to hell. Um, it, it, that's a great example, a period example of of how. Um, you know, a, a current events really impact sort of uh, how, how children are thinking and the experience of growing up. And, and I, I guarantee there are things that we may not even know about uh, that, that are that are part of, uh, you know, the uh, the cultural experience of being a 9, 10, 12, 13 year old, uh, you know, that really impression, impressionable age. Um, and then for teenagers, and I've got one. Um, I, this cannot do anything, in my opinion, but in but install, install cynicism and distrust uh, within our American American teenagers. Yeah, I mean, if you're if if you're of the age where I think you're aware to know what's happening, whether it's the mask debate, whether it's how things have been handled from a national, state, or local level. If you have the wherewithal and, and you're at that space, I, I do think that you'll come out of this differently. Um, so that that's interesting. Whereas my son, you know, he's six, so he just kind of rolls with the punches. I tell him to put a mask on, put a mask on. He doesn't really understand what's going on. He just knows that he's gotten to spend a lot of time at home with mom. Um, so there's a there's a striking contrast too between certainly the age of, of the child, but also you know, in this article that we're, we're referencing talked about was if you have access to internet and remote learning, your experience right now is vastly different than those who don't. Um, and those, the steps that separation is going to be more widely felt. And I would hope ultimately will bring, will also bring about more awareness of, you know, kind of the people who have things and those who, who don't. Um, 
and I would hope maybe some empathy to want to change that, right? I think it's those, the differences have never been um, in a lot of ways as defining as they are now. Agreed. Um, I, I do think that um, even this period of time, essentially an entire semester or more or less of school so far, and certain to be longer than that, it's probably enough to change what kids going forward think of school. When you and I think of school, certainly what I do, when you, but when we, you think of a place. You think of, I went to school. I went to this building. And um, I think a lot of, you know, hopefully that will resume as part of the experience. I, I believe it will um, uh, at, different sta- at, at different stages initially, but ultimately. But I, this is not something that you're as well as I. <laughs> Correct. Yes, it more for us. Uh, it's not something you forget. I mean, this is a permanent uh, impression, a, a permanent experience. Uh, I mean, a permanent memory that um, will change, will impact a generation forever. And that's uh, and that's kind of what the discussion is about. And with this very good piece in the Boston Globe, what will become of Generation COVID? All right, Cayenne. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, Kyan, let's talk about masks. There continues to be sort of a societal, cultural debate uh, over the wearing of masks, and depending on what state you're in, I think it fluctuates, but essentially, as of like two days ago, from as we speak now, the CDC has has said, wear a mask, indoors, outdoors, if you're going to encounter other people, and, and I think that's the way, that's the way I look at it, it's not like, you need, again, you don't need to, if you're standing in a field surrounded by nothing, you don't need to, I don't see how you need to have a mask on. If you're in your yeah. vehicle by yourself, whatever it might be, if you're in your own home or even on your own property in your backyard, but if you're going to encounter people, you should wear a mask as a best practice. And there's still not a lot of buy-in. And there's still not a lot of buy-in in states which right now, like Massachusetts was back in March and April and May, uh, like New York was, that right now are seeing this incredible surge of infection. Not only is it not a lot, not uniform buy-in, there, there are states without without mask orders. Yeah. Continue. And even when there are mask orders, there are still people who are trying to figure out how to get around it. Um, and look, I don't think anybody can say that they particularly enjoy wearing a mask. Um, I don't. I, I still have not figured out how to breathe very well in them. I think it's probably a learned habit um, because there are people who work in science and medical professions, among others, who wear masks all day to go to work and always have, and they seem to be doing okay. Um, my feeling is, yes, it's, it's not the best way to go about your day. I, I don't disagree with that. But if it's going to protect you, like, why not? Forget the fact that it's also protecting all the other people that you come into contact with. But if your only dr- drive is a selfish one, why wouldn't you try and do something to protect yourself?
um, it's counterintuitive because this thing is not going away. Uh, we have seen surges in a number of states that are going in the opposite direction as things open back up, and particularly if people are not wearing masks when they are taking part in these activities that have opened back up. None of us want to live like this forever. Um, so just, you know, wear the mask. People, well, I, I try to compare it to other, other, other things or, or similar, similar uh, you know, uh, comparable situations. You know, how, and, and how much time are you actually wearing a mask? Um, and and, and let, let's look at that. Now, without going into too much, too, too much detail, lots of different jobs that are now reactivated and reopened. Uh, it might require someone to wear a mask the entire shift, and that, that's a that can be a difficult thing. Understood. It also can be and should be looked at as as part of your equipment, uniform, uh, gear for your job. And you know what? If if wearing a hard hat is part of your job, and wearing uh you know a harness of a safety harness, or wearing steel toe boots, or wearing uh, a uniform is part of your job, or wearing a mask could be. So. That addresses sort of that category of mask wearing, where I don't think that it's my right to not wear necessarily applies if it's part of keeping your customers, your client, your uh, the public or whatever it may be, and yourself safe. But mm -hmm. then what about the rest of the time? Well, you're asleep a good six to eight hours a night, so knock that off the table. You're in your own home for some part of the day, so knock some hours off the table. It, it, it comes down to this variable number of probably less than six hours when you have, uh, you know, free, to, you know, available time to do things, to do other things. Okay, how much of that is actually spent interacting, even in normal times, with other people in a way where you're going to be close to them? And 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 there you go. And one of the things I like in it too is. Wearing, you know, in the winter, I, I, I hate wearing a coat, even in the winter, but I also get really cold. So I leave my house I, I'm, and it's freezing out. I'm wearing my coat. The first opportunity I have to take it off, I'm going to do that, you know, yeah. but I'm going to wear the coat when I, I, I'm otherwise going to be freezing. Say, so, you know, it's simple. Okay. I don't want to wear a coat because I don't like to wear a coat because I like to be sort of, uh, you, you know, more comfortable, but I'm going to wear a coat because it's freezing. And, and it's probably going to be on me unless I'm going for some kind of a hike or a walk, you know, less than an hour in, in terms of my typical day. That's too, it, it varies. Same idea with a mask. You know, you're going to wear it for a period of time. But, but how, for, for those who are rebelling, you know, you're rebelling against about how big of an inconvenience is it really? And I think it's a lot less of an inconvenience if you break down your 24 hours into, gee, when would I actually need to put the mask on? And yeah. That's no, that's a good point. I mean, even if you go to a store, you know, if you need a breather, you know, you can step outside or if you're in an aisle or something where there's nobody, you can take it down for a moment, take a, you know, take a breath if you need to. It, it doesn't have to be as cumbersome as, as people may, in some instances, maybe making it out to be. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, Cayenne. You. You wanna, we're wearing our masks.
I am. I'm, I keep trying new ones to find my to find a favorite. Oh, I'm. Oh, I've I've I have like a. I'm like. I'm kind of a collector. I'm collecting masks of all types. <laughs> I still. I've I've mostly settled on the neck gator type. Uh, I found some good lightweight summerweight ones because the, the the winter ones are probably the actually the most comfortable, but they're just too heavy. They're just too. You can't wear them in the summer. So that, that's yeah. kind of my favorite, but but it. Um, the, the, just the the typical throwaway surgical mask is is an easy thing to have available, but I feel like it makes yeah. me feel the most like you know I don't know I'm, I'm going in for some kind of procedure just by going to the store right wearing a surgical mask. My <laughs> doesn't throw my gown while I'm at it. <laughs> I uh, I actually you know in a pinch I've used a bandana. Don't yeah. mind a bandana. Love the bandana's good. Looks looks cool. Yeah, and it allows for like a little bit more breathability down. So there's a tip, tip for everyone. You know, exactly. trial and error. Keep keep working until you find the mask that you can manage to wear for the time necessary in the day, which to Cosmo's point is not all that much when you break it down. Agreed. All right, Kyan. Finally, um, sp sports. Sports industry is one of the is, is certainly severely impacted by COVID nineteen. Um, Entrepreneur Magazine story this week that the sports business uh, industry is innovating and, uh, and and doing new things to try to cope with this and is actually uh, having some success with some creativity. Um, tell me more about that. Well, look, I mean, according to this article, there's uh, an estimated $471 billion in revenue was generated generated globally by the sports industry in 2018, um, which is a 45% increase since 2011. That's a lot of money. Um, and it's a lot of jobs, too, which is important to, to mention and, and flag why this industry is so important, not only for people's... Um, convenience and you know things that make them happy or, or leisure activities or whatever it is um, as a hobby to sit and you know watch a game it's incredibly important to people's lives but it's also really important for all the people who are employed by the sports industry um, and that's from players all the way down to people working at the concession stands at, at stadiums um, so they had to reassess a little bit we've seen a lot of classic games um, like broadcast lineups and documentaries and archived content that yep. these stations have all kind of looked around and, and talked to teams and said, how can we keep our fans entertained during this time? Um, now, is it going to make $471 billion in revenue? I doubt that. Um, but esports have accelerated um, and consumers have had something to fill a bit of the gap as all of these separate sports and, and managers and, and owners said, how do we bring our teams back, which they're obviously now trying to do. Um, and it's, it's difficult because they bring people back, one test positive, and then everything kind of 
changes and gets put on hold again. Um, so like every other industry, flexibility and innovation is what's helping to keep this industry alive and moving forward. Yeah. As we speak, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, I think ball games and, and Red Sox are practicing at Fenway and things like that. Um, trying to create some of the experience and, and, and people are, 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 are trying to get excited about it. I mean, I, I think the prospects for the professional sports seasons are very dim regardless. I do think that there's a lesson or at least a model to, to generate some level of interest or continued interest and, um, and, and, and build revenue from that. It doesn't replace the experience of the games. Uh, but the model actually is is what's called sports entertainment, I guess, and that and and or otherwise known as the WWE. Um, as that has grown tremendously in popularity over the last twenty five years or more, um, it, the actual events are, are still a, a significant and the, the major draw. However. The promotion around those and the personalities and all of the content that's created that is really outside of the ring and has nothing to do with an actual wrestling match has become just as big, if not bigger. And there could be a model there during this time where franchises and leagues say, hey, we need our superstars to start engaging in completely different ways and 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 to attract the fan, fans attention and, and, and attention in different ways and, and to just use their celebrity to keep people interested and, and, and for us to create content. I, I don't know what that necessarily could look like, but I think if you've got, you know, some of the biggest pop culture superstars in America still are um, basketball, football, baseball, hockey, soccer, and other athletes, then there's an opportunity to do that because the games are not going to have the, um, uh, the juice for a period of time. They, there may not be any games, but even when there are, it's going to be different. So I think that that's one model. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if you can turn on a dime like that, but, um, all these leagues are suffering revenue-wise, so maybe leveraging the celebrity in a different way um, might be one way of approaching it. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's one way that uh, social media is playing an incredibly powerful role right now. Um, in so many industries, it's an outlet for people, it's a way for people to stay connected. But to your point, it's a way to have a platform um, that they otherwise wouldn't have if we were going through all of this, you know, a decade or two decades ago. Um, they've been able to keep things moving forward because of technology and digital platforms that they can take advantage of. Agreed. All right. Excellent. Good conversation. Thanks, Cayenne. Another, uh, another week of on the books.
Good morning, Cayenne. Good morning, Tom, and good morning, Eric. Good morning. So we announced some exciting news last week. Our public relations practice of O'Neill and Associates merged with Seven Letter, a communications firm based in Washington, D.C. And today I'm joined by Tom O'Neill and Eric Smith, who is the founding partner of Seven Letter. Uh, first, congratulations to you both. I think last week's announcement marks an exciting new beginning for all of us. You know, this is a merger. This is a merger of people. It's a merger of technology. It's a merger of ideas. It's a merger of platform capability. It's an opportunity for people, especially our clients, to realize the benefits of what this merged company is, is going to provide them. And I'm proud to introduce Eric Smith to our whole podcast listening audience because he's a very special friend. We've grown together over these last couple of years and uh, we've gotten to know each other. I've admired what he's been able to build and I, I'm, I'm proud to introduce him, as I said. I wish Eric would just take a moment, though, and, and tell folks who he is, where he came from, and how he got to where he got to. Sure, absolutely, Tom, and thanks for this, and thanks for 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 your trust in, in us as partners. I, you know, Cayenne, this is um special for me. I, you know, my story starts in Massachusetts. I was born in Massachusetts and grew up there. Um, you know, I know I've, I've known of Tom for a long time. A tremendous respect for him, and the idea of being able to kind of. Uh, stand side by side and partner with him on this, on this new endeavor is really exciting for me and for all my colleagues. Um, uh, like I said, I, you know, I was born in Western Massachusetts, went to school in Boston University. And when I graduated, the, the economy was in a terrible place. Uh, I went home and, and ended up volunteering on a congressional race, a guy named John Olver, who was a state senator at the time running in a special election after the death of Silvio Conti. Um, and uh, it was there answering phones and manning the front desk as a volunteer that I really fell in love with politics. Uh, John Olver won. I, I drove a bunch of his possessions to Washington as an excuse to get down there and uh, proceeded to work in electoral politics for the next uh, several years, working on campaigns across the country, uh, the Clinton-Gore campaign, Senate races, other things. But um, my, you know, I, I got into the PR side because... I loved writing and I, I loved uh, uh, um, uh, the, the written word. And I, and I also um, really enjoyed uh, interchanges, exchanges with the media. So uh, my longest tenure job at the end of my career in politics was as Dick Gebhardt's um, press secretary and the communications director when he was the House Minority Leader. Uh, when he retired from politics, I like to say I did too. Um, and in 2006, joined a, one of these large um, multinational PR firms, which uh, was a great learning experience. I spent a couple years there, and to be honest with you, Tom and Cayenne, I learned everything I didn't want a PR practice to be while I was there. And Seven Letter has really been built as a reaction to that. Um, and and we and, and some of the things I think that are wrong with the industry, and some of the things that we try to fix, and a lot of the things that I see in O'Neill Associates, and a lot of kindred spirits there. So this is why this this partnership makes so much sense. So, Go ahead, Diane. O'Neill & Associates has a long history of success here in Boston. Um, and, and even before that, Tom, you here in Boston. Uh, what was the thought process behind making the decision to team up with Seven Letter? First, the admiration I had uh, for Eric in the, in, the, in the business that he built in social media. And we have, you know, for the longest time understood that digital 
expression is really the future of our business, the public relations side of our business, if not the, the government relations side of the business. And over time, we've tried to organically grow. And what I realized we were missing was so many of the platforms that Seven Letter provides. And so when we saw this technology and this capability, it made a great deal of sense to, rather than grow O'Neill & Associates organically, to kind of put two enterprises together so that all the platforms we need for the future of our, our business, our clients servicing, and uh, in our growth, we're sitting over at Seven Letter, and I, I, I persuaded Eric, or he persuaded me, I don't know how it worked out, but it was certainly mutual, um, to, to kind of look at our people because we have terrific people um, at, at O'Neill and & Associates. We don't want to lose them, but we need this, these, these added digital platforms, and it just made an awful lot of sense, to be perfectly honest with you, Kayen. And Eric, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, what brought you to Tom and O'Neill, but this certainly brings an, a new level of expansion for Seven Letter. Um, what is that? What do you see uh, for the for the path forward? Sure. Well, look, I think one of the reasons that this merger and partnership makes so much sense is because our businesses look so much alike. We're both expertise-driven businesses. We're both um, offering senior-level counsel. In contrast to the kind of, you know, most PR firms don't operate that way. They're, they are trying to get you as uh, many mentions uh, in the media without much strategy or thought behind it. Um, but I, what I really loved about Tom and his team was that they looked like our team at Seven Letter, which is dominated by senior-level practitioners focused on um, strategy focused on kind of helping clients through difficult periods and different and complex situations, which is what where we really flourish. I will say too that, you know, I'm really proud of the digital tools we've built. Um, and, and, and Tom mentioned, uh, you know, I, I did take two breaks from the, my firm to work on the two. I was lucky enough to work on the two Obama campaigns in 2008 and 2012. Coming out of 2008, digital advertising was really kind of in, 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 in this sector was really just kind of in its infancy. And we um, integrated it into our business in 2009. We're really, I think, some of the leaders in the PR space as far as utilizing digital tools every day. Um, and then 2012, we, there were a lot of innovations in um, digital analytics. Uh, and we try to capture those in our practice as well. And right now, we've kind of got them built around a, 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 a pillar of our business called Seven Letter Labs, which we're really proud of. We think there's a lot of innovation there, a lot of creativity and that's the, uh, it's, it's really a suite of, of, of talented people and technology tools that can help uh, folks get their message out effectively. And Tom, OA has long been a public affairs company that offers both public relations and government relations services to clients. Um, we've been talking a lot to clients in the last couple of weeks about how that won't change. Uh, we're going to continue to be, you know, coexisting together and, and offering services. But what's the model going forward for these offerings? You know, the model going forward is is going to be identical to the market model looking backward. Uh, we're going to we're going to make sure that our clients continue to receive the services which we've been giving them as seamlessly as we possibly can. So the PR aspect of our of our company and its people may be housed in a different corporation, but they're going to be working together under the same roof and having opportunities to interact and, and, and still remain part of teams, helping out on public affairs issues according to our client needs. And um, 
you know, through the conversations that we've had with our clients over these last couple of weeks, we, we've, we've, we've made change very strongly that, you know, that, that seamlessness, that operation, the, the conditions of having both uh, expertise in government relations as well as from public relations are going to be there. They're going to be there going forward and they're going to be there amplified because of the tool chest that Eric was talking about that he brings to the party. And I'm very excited about it. And so are the folks at, at uh, O'Neill and Associates, now seven letter ONA, they're excited as well because they see the growth opportunities, not only for the company, but for themselves. Absolutely. So in uh, before we wrap up, I would just, I guess, ask this is a question for both of you. Um, what do you want people to know about this new, this new company and expanded team and what we're going to be up to going forward? Eric, if you want to go first, I'll, I'll, I'll come in after you. Sure. I, I think that um, the most important thing for our clients and future clients to know is that we're offering the same uh, high-level strategic smart service with simply a larger toolbox. There's not going to be a lot of changes. They're the same. You know, the, the people at ONA are excellent. The people at Seven Letter, I'm incredibly proud to work with. We're going to, you know, the, the people are what make this business so special. Um, what we're able to do now, though, is just give everybody more tools to go do their job and more uh, innovative and interesting tools, which which help in a kind of new, crowded media marketplace to get people's message out. I think that's all very, very important. I think the one thing I'd add to that is that for anybody reading the newspaper account last week, walking away from that from that reading thinking, ah, this is the next step to O'Neill's retirement, you know, he's giving up the reins. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, uh, they're going to carry me out of here. <laughs> way or another um, i can attest to that you love coming to work i love i love <laughs> and am excited about this this new merged coming together of the two companies and the and the opportunities that it's going to provide i'm just excited about it. and um, you know today is really like like the third day or the fourth day of work days that um, eric and i have worked together and have brought the company together have talked about the client needs and um understanding that everything we are talking about and the reasons that we did this merger are, are, are coming true and are most fruitful. So I thank you for this, Diane. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and introduce Eric to the, to the podcast crowd. And, and Tom, I, if I could just take a moment and say that, you know, one of the biggest incentives for us to engage in this partnership was to work with you moving forward. And really, I'm really excited to, to, to again, to, to be working with you every day moving forward. Thanks a million. Cayenne, thank you. Thank you both. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.